Well, good morning again, everyone. Glad that you are here this morning. Um, if, if you're new, um, I'll just say a quick ex explanation that every year in the four weeks leading up to Advent, we talk about four of the great saints of the church just to see if their lives can speak to us again. And our saint for today is a writer and theologian named Frederick Beekner. And I confess that I, I think I've never been more anxious to talk about a saint because I love Beekner's work so much and because I know that many of you do as well, and so I don't want to mess it up. Um, how many of you have read Beekner um, in some form or fashion? Yeah, that's a lot of hands. So um, you're the ones I'm afraid I will let down. So if I do, I'm sorry ahead of time, but I'll do my best to tell his story and to let his, um, or, or to help us um, listen to his life together. And that phrase, listen to your life, is one of Beekner's most quoted lines. It's been picked up and played with by many writers and thinkers. Parker Palmer wrote a whole book based on that one line. We give it to our seniors every year when they graduate from high school. Barbara Taylor, Anne Lamott, Marilyn Robinson, Richard Rohr all played around with this one line. And there's a sense in which that phrase, listen to your life, is the central theme of Frederick Beekner's writing. And so it's this theme that we'll explore this morning. Carl Frederick Beekner was born in New York City in 1926. He was born into wealth and privilege. He was educated in ritzy private schools. He um, went to a boarding school called Lawrenceville for high school, where a couple of lasting things happened to him. One, he met his lifelong friend, Jimmy Merrill, and two, together, they discovered they wanted to be writers. Um, James Merrill would later win the Pulitzer in poetry. Beekner was nominated for both a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award. Not bad for a couple of nerdy high school best friends, right? Um, and each of them would credit the other um, as an inspiration and encouragement in their work. After high school, he went to Princeton. This was 1943, so World War II was, in, um, was rolling, and, and Beekner would later confess that they didn't really study that much. They mostly just drank beers and went to going away parties for people who were headed to the wars um, and just waited for, to be called up themselves for military service, which he was in 1944. And to his surprise, Beekner, this really artsy, literary type, he kind of liked the army, um, the adventure of it, the camaraderie, um, spending time in nature. He even enjoyed the training until their final war games with live rounds and grenades where he had something like a panic attack and washed out of the infantry, at least. And so he served out the war in a non-combat role. And then it was back to Princeton, only now taking it much more seriously, um, and producing the beginnings of his first novel, which would be published not long after graduation. It was called A Long Day's Dying. And it found immediate success, like overnight. Um, Frederick Beekner's face was on the pages of Time and Newsweek and the New York Times. He was celebrated as a great young American novelist. He was only 23 years old. And so, he took a leave of absence from his teaching job to work on a second novel called A Season's Difference, which in his own words, his second novel failed as badly as the first one had fared. Um, so uh, one, there's one particular stinging review that I read, it was in The Atlantic, that concluded, and this guy writes in there, Beekner had nothing significant to say, which totally cracks me up. <laughs> um, 
But at age 25, this was his fear that the reviewer could be right, that he was destined to wash out again. And so he moved to New York City, took a job lecturing at NYU, moved into an apartment on Madison Avenue, and kept writing. And he, when he talks about the time, he says, almost out of sheer boredom, he started to go to church, which was odd for his family. Um, they had never gone to church. They had no religious practices. But as it happens, Beekner could see the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church from his apartment window there. And he would stare down on it as he was writing. And their pastor was somewhat um, famous. He was a writer um, named George Buttrick. He often worked with literary things. He would talk about Shakespeare and Gerard Manley Hopkins. And so Beekner began, began attending church. At first, really just to have something to do because he was bored on Sundays. But soon he sensed that Buttrick was writing from a place of depth and wisdom, something he felt he himself was lacking. And one week, Buttrick was talking about Christ's temptation in the wilderness. And he said that Christ had refused the crown that was offered him on that day, but became king nonetheless, because again and again, Christ is crowned in the hearts of those who believe in him. And what Betrick said was that this coronation takes place among confession and tears and great laughter. And there was something about that phrase, great laughter, that sort of snuck its way through, through the, the door in Beekner's heart. And he felt himself converted, in a sense. He had become a Christian in spite of himself because of this promise of great laughter. And to understand, I think, why laughter would do the trick for Bigner, we have to know a little something about his life and what happened many years before, especially an event that in many respects defined everything that came after it. Early one Sunday morning in the fall, Bigner was 10, his little brother eight, and they woke before everyone else in the house. They were too excited to sleep because their parents had promised them uh, to take them to a football game. They weren't excited about the football game, but they were excited about being taken somewhere. And they were playing in their room with a toy roulette wheel. Um, the door was shut. They were trying to be quiet. And at some point, the door to their room opened just a crack, and their father, wearing gray slacks and a maroon sweater, looked in on them. And he didn't say anything, just watched them play for a little while. And they kept at it, thinking nothing of it. And then their father closed the door, went down to the garage, started the family car, sat down on the running board and waited for the exhaust to kill him, which it did. And memories of that day, he would say, grew sketchy over the years for Beekner. They, there were screams, he remembered, from the adults who found him, gray smoke in the air, the smell of exhaust, their grandmother telling them to stay in the room, and he and his brother watching from a second-story window as neighbors rushed to help to try and revive him the sound of gravel and a car careening up the driveway, a doctor hunching over him and then shaking his head. A few days later, they would find a note scribbled on the last page of a book, Gone with the Wind, that he was reading at the time. It said, I adore and love you and am no good. Give Freddie my watch. Give Jamie my pearl pin. I give you all my love. But what Beekner remembers um, all too clearly was that after that day, they didn't talk about their father or his death. Their mother said it made her too sad. There was no funeral, no memorial service, no mention of how he died. Suicide was seen as a disgrace, and so it became a kind of dark family secret. 
Um, if he was, later in his life, if he was asked how his father died, he would usually simply say heart trouble, which he felt was at least a little bit true. In his memoir, Telling Secrets, Bigner wrote about this time. He said, we didn't talk about my father with each other, and we didn't talk about him outside the family either. My father had tried to keep it a secret himself by leaving his note to my mother in a place where only she would be likely to find it, and by saying a number of times the last few weeks of his life that there was something wrong with the Chevy's exhaust system. He did this partly in hopes that his life insurance wouldn't be invalidated, which of course it was. And partly, too, I guess, in hopes that his friends wouldn't find out how he died, which, of course, they did. His suicide was a secret we nonetheless tried to keep as best we could. And after a while, my father himself became such a secret. There were times when he almost seems a secret we were trying to keep from each other. And because words are so much a part of what we keep the past alive by, if only words to ourselves, by not speaking of what we remembered about him, we soon simply stopped remembering at all, or at least I did. So part of what Frederick Buechner was responding to in George Buttrick's promise of confession in tears and great laughter was his own deep need for confession, a way to tell the truth about his life, to remember what he had been asked to forget, to cry the tears he had never cried, to find great laughter and a place of gladness again. Gladness and laughter, if you know Buechner, are also really big themes in his work. So Buechner left church that morning in 1952 as if awakened from a deep sleep. A few days later, he would go see um, George Buttrick, the pastor, tell him what happened, and, and he told him he was thinking about going to seminary, and Buttrick tried to talk him out of it. He said, it would be a shame to lose a brilliant novelist just to gain a mediocre preacher, <laughs> which I try not to be offended by that. <laughs> um, but Bigner persisted, and he said, I think this is what I'm going to do. And so Buttrick grabbed his coat, grabbed Bigner's coat, went, took him down to their car, and he drove him straight up town, 30 blocks to Union Theological Seminary. And introduced him around, and Buechner enrolled and started classes that next fall. And this began a season, season of healing and, and fruitfulness for Buechner. He won a fellowship to help him pay for it, graduated from seminary in 1958. He was ordained, interestingly, not as a pastor, but as an apologist, as a writer. And he also met his wife, Judith Merck. Um, if the name sounds familiar, she is an heiress to the Merck pharmaceutical empire. So way to go, Freddie B. Like, nicely done. <laughs> and by all accounts, they had a, a happy marriage for 67 years until he died this year. And he kept writing. His, his next work was a short story called The Tiger that won the O. Henry Award. His third novel, soon after the return of Ansel Gibbs, won the prestigious Rosenthal Award and was actually made into a movie. And Buechner says the most exciting thing about going to the awards banquet was that Truman Capote was there and his date was Marilyn Monroe. He got to meet Marilyn Monroe. He went on to write 15 novels. One of them named Godric was, anybody read Godric? Anybody read it? It's a really weird read, but man, it's amazing. It was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And one named Lion Country was nominated for a National Book Award. He wrote dozens of volumes of memoirs and sermons 
40 books in all. And he would always say that part of the magic of his writing career came from his time at Union Theological Seminary. And um, he was there at Union at, like in its heyday, its prime. His teachers were giants. Folks like Karl Barth, Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr, James Meilenberg. I mean, kill me now. Like, as a theologian, like, I would, I would do anything for that. From Bart, he learned what preaching was for. From Tillich, he learned that doubt is an indispensable part of faith. From Niebuhr, he learned that Christianity has to impact politics, economics, foreign affairs. And from James Meilenberg, he learned just about everything else. Meilenberg was the preeminent Old Testament scholar in, in the United States at the time. He was Buechner's Old Testament professor and main theological influence and eventually his close friend. He actually performed the ceremony at Buechner's wedding. And it was James Meilenberg who first brought the Old Testament to life for Frederick Buechner. And it was Fre Frederick Buechner who first brought the Old Testament to life for me. And so I owe him a huge debt. His book, The Son of Laughter, anybody read Son of Laughter? If you want to start somewhere, start there. I, some, some people have borrowed my copy and I ask people to borrow and write scruple things in the margin to me because then I can go there and read their thoughts. Um, it's the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only it's dramatized, it's just beautiful. Um, Meilenberg had this ability to do this through the Hebrew scriptures. He could bring the memory of the people of God to life again and he taught Buechner how taught his students just the miraculous power of memory and the indispensable role that remembering plays in the life of the people of God. The Hebrew word for remember is zakar. It's found 236 times in the Old Testament, remember. The word forget, shakak, is 102 times, something like that. It's like almost 350 times remembering or its lack are directly mentioned in, in the Hebrew scriptures and in, implicit many other times. Like Genesis 8, but God remembered Noah and the wild animals. Genesis 9, and the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and all flesh. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham. That's three down, 233 more to go. We'll get through all of them. I'm just kidding. Genesis 30, God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. Exodus 6, I have heard the groaning of the children of Israel and have remembered my covenant. Leviticus 26, I will remember my covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of the Hebrew Bible is a God who remembers. And, and where this word shows up makes clear our lives are dependent upon God's memory. And God calls his people to be rememberers themselves. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Numbers 15, make the fringes on the corners of your garments so that when you see it, you will remember all my commands. Deuteronomy 5, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and that I, the Lord your God, have brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember. Remembering is the serious work of the people of God and a big part of why we gather each week. God is a God who remembers and we are a people who are called to practice remembering. And so memory became central to one of Buechner's most consistent themes. 
from James Meilenberg, he learned that God's primary language, and this is kind of a weird thing, but God's primary language is history, the events of our lives, the history of our world generally and our personal histories is God's language, God's way of speaking to us. It's not primarily, he said, through a, through a word or a sound, but through the events of our lives. It is through what happens to you that God speaks, Beekner writes. It's in language that's not always easy to decipher, but it's there powerfully, memorably, unforgettably. It's easy to miss the profound logic and implications, I think, of this claim, but Beekner came to believe and powerfully argue and practice that if God speaks to us through the events of our lives, then learning to listen to our lives, to make sense of them, to make meaning of them, is an essential Christian practice. And of course, the way we do this is through language, right? And storytelling. We bring the events of our life to speech. We just do this naturally through language. We tell our stories and then try to locate them within a larger story about life and the world and what it means to be human. And this is how our lives find meaning. And for Beekner, the primary kind of category for this is memory, remembering, meaning-making. For Beekner is remembering, They're the same. A way that even our brokenness and failures and betrayals and sadness can find a place within this story that we call gospel, good news. And that we say is true because it can make us true more truly human as it comes to define our lives. Of course, the problem with this is that at any given time, we can only bring to speech like a tiny little bit of our experience. I mean, you know this, right? This is part of what it means to be human, and it's, it's not always great. As things happen to us, there's much that we cannot see or even imagine. We only have like so many words and a limited maturity and wisdom, and we can only take so much reality before it overwhelms and, and just surpasses us. It's like um, our experience of life is, you know, this big, and the amount of it we can account for, describe, imagine, is like this big. It's limited, it's incomplete. We, we need it to be small and compact so we can, you know, carry it like a football around. We see through a glass dimly. It's like if you're sitting with a teenager and they tell you a story like, this is what happened, this is what happened, and this is what it means, and the whole time you're thinking, there's so much that you're missing right now, kid. Many aspects of this situation or just reality itself that you can't see, it's just beyond a 15, 16, 17-year-old, right? Though you try your best to help them, later on they will say, why didn't you tell me, right? Or worse, they'll, a coach or youth pastor will tell this, them the exact same thing you did, and it's as if they spoke directly to Gandhi himself, you know? <laughs> of course, it's not just kids, right? It's all of us. The truth exceeds reality, exceeds our imagination for it. Life is infinitely complex, way too big to capture in words. But we have to try. We have to try because we're meaning-making creatures. Stuff happens 
we tell the story. We bring it to speech, right? But in doing this, we, we also hide much of it from, our, from ourselves. In part, to avoid thoughts like, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe this is all my fault. Or maybe my mom or my dad or my mentors or whatever, they, maybe they're not what I thought they were. Maybe this whole thing, the landscape is different than I thought. And it's scary to disturb settled realities, right? All of us, we sort of become fundamentalists about our own lives. We fight anybody who comes with an alternate story. And sometimes we just refuse to remember huge swaths of our life because to remember is to feel it all again and to have to deal with it all again. And we can only take so much pain. We can only take so much truth reality. Now stay with me here because I'm going to make a jump and it's probably going to make your head hurt. But this is, I think, the genius move that Beekner taught me to make. (laughs) Exactly. If the reality of our experience, your life, is this big, and, but our capacity to account for that, describe it, conceive it, is much smaller. It's, it's, this big, then that means that the story we tell ourselves about the world always leaves so much out. And whatever meaning we give it, in a sense, cuts us off from all other possible meanings. Does that make sense? But here's the thing. It's not just cutting us off from, from meanings. It cuts us off from God. Because God speaks to us through the events of our life, all of the events of our lives. God is present to us through all of the events of our lives, not just the ones we hold to and imagine to describe. All of them, the ones we remember and the the ones we don't. Even just by telling our limited stories and defining our limited reality, which we have to do, we always do this, we can't help ourselves, but we inevitably become alienated from huge swaths of our own experience. And in many ways from the God um, who is trying to speak to us and be present to us through our lives. Those aspects of reality, those aspects of God's speech that don't fit in in the box we created, the reality we, we can hold on to, they have been, in a sense, dismembered by our stories. Isn't that weird? And what Meilenberg taught Beekner and Beekner taught me is that this is why remembering is such a huge part of the story of God. I mean, religion itself is about this. Religion is, um, shares, it, it's um, in the same semantic field as um, you might say re-ligamenting. Religion is re-ligamenting, reattaching, remembering what has been dismembered. The life of faith involves remembering missing parts of our life, learning to see a little more and a little more each time we go through those memories. The way I interpret the things that happened to me as an 11 or 12-year-old, now as a 53-year-old, I can see so much more. I can bring so much more of it to, to speech. And as I do my understanding of life and the world and what it means to be human, it grows deeper and richer, rooting me more soundly in reality. 
and truth. And yet, I can always be sure some of reality and truth evades me. My understanding is always incomplete, and so you have to just keep going. I have to keep re-remembering, going back through, especially the biggest things, the good and the bad, in each new season of life. God speaks to us through our lives, Beekner writes. Something speaks anyway, spells out some sort of godly or God-forsaken meaning to us through the alphabet of our years. But often it takes many years, he says, and many further spellings out before we start to glimpse or think we do a little of what that meaning is. Even then, we glimpse it only dimly, like the first trace of dawn on the rim of night. And even then, it is a meaning that we cannot fix and be sure of once and for all, because it is always incarnate meaning, and thus as alive and changing as we are ourselves alive and changing. Sadly, some people refuse to do the work of remembering. In fact, all of us do this. There are all of us. We have things that we don't want to talk about, things we do not want to remember. They have been dismembered, and we like them that way. The problem is, as we refuse to remember, our understanding of life and the world and what it means to be human tends to shrink, and our foothold in reality becomes more tenuous, and we just remain cut off from what is real and usually cut off from God, parts of ourself, each other, the world. To refuse to do the work of remembering is to cut ourselves off from the possibility of a new future and, and the ever-expanding self, the growth and vitality that is God's promise to us. Bigner wrote a lot about his mother and the way she refused to remember her husband's suicide because this also meant that she refused to take any responsibility for it, to acknowledge her part in it. His father was an alcoholic, and his mother was kind of codependent, and his dad had trouble holding down a job. His mother had a sharp tongue, and she could savage him with her words, and often did. It was a kind of cruelty that did lasting damage to him. And on some level, perhaps the guilt was just too much for her. So as the years went by, she, she just remained cut off from this whole big aspect of her experience, just dismembered a big swath of reality, especially her husband's suicide. But her son, Freddie, that's what he called him. His dad was Fred. He was Freddie. He was a writer, and writers write, and they write about their own lives. And so he wrote about this for the first time in one of his novels. He just told it, wove that story into the story. And his mom read it and nearly lost her mind. She raged on him, turning her savage tongue on Freddie in fury and rage. She savaged him for remembering what she had dismembered. And to his knowledge, she never read another one of his books that he wrote. Beekner says that over time in, um, in her life, her own self, her own life, her own soul began to kind of shrink. After it happened, she cut herself off from friends because she was ashamed, and then from much of the family, and then from anything kind of outside her little neighborhood in New York City, and then soon just wouldn't leave the apartment building she lived in 
and then cut herself off from everything outside her own apartment. He had to come to her if he wanted to see her. And then from her own bedroom and just a chair in the bed, and then soon it was just the bed, her life grew smaller and smaller, and eventually her body began to grow smaller, literally wither. She became almost childlike. Beekner would often tell his mother's story as a cautionary tale. One of his most famous sermons um, was titled, A Room Called Remember. You can look it up, it's online if you wanna read it. And in this sermon, A Room Called Remember, he wrote this, one way or another, we are always remembering. There is no escaping it, even if we want to, or at least no escaping it for long, though God knows there are times when we try to, don't want to remember. In one sense, the past is dead and gone, never to be repeated, over and done with. But in another sense, it is, of course, not done with at all, or at least not done with us. Bigner says over and over in a ton of different ways, all the magic happens in a room called remember, where we remember our stories, our lives, which is God's way of coming to us, where we tell our stories to each other and work on them together. You know, most of the time, our ability to tell a truer, more complete story depends upon our willingness to let somebody else speak into it. It's essential. It requires the presence of another and alternative interpretations to help us find new meanings. And it's hard, it's hard to do this. It's painful. We need each other to do this work. And it's never easy. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say remembering the difficult parts of our past is easy, but healing and growth, the ability to come more alive, to meet God, to chase wholeness and flourishing, this work happens in a room called Remember. Healings happen in that room. New life, new creation springs forth from that room. Huge aspects of our own lives and reality and even the very presence of God just suddenly expands and finds new meaning in a room called remember. It is through memory, Bigner writes, that we are able to reclaim much of our lives that we have long since written off. By finding that in everything that has happened to us over the years, God was offering us possibilities of new life and healing, which though we may have missed them at the time, we can still choose and be brought to life by and healed by all these years later. It's from a book called Telling Secrets. I love that. A room called Remember. This is, this is where we can reclaim our own lives. I know this to be true because I've experienced it in my own life. And there are things that have happened to me I wish I could dismember. God knows I've tried to dismember them for years. But when I finally found the courage or maybe just the desperation, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between courage and desperation. However it was, I found my way to a room called Remember. And what I found was God was waiting there. For me, usually, ooh, that gets me to think about, usually in the form of Kristen, another person, or, or one of my friends will just be in it with me and listen to my memories and help me see sometimes things I, I've been missing, even um, things that I tortured myself over for years. And they finally 
were drawn into my story and I could begin to carry them around and they became kind of the seeds of redemption. And of course, we all have those things. You have those things that you don't want to remember. You have dismembered them. But I'm telling you, this is the inescapable work of becoming human. You will need to find a way to re-remember the dismembered aspects of your life, to rethink your settled meanings. Hear me, rethink your settled meanings. To open up to new possibilities, for new worlds to appear, you have to learn to let your life speak to you. Let your past speak. This is the path to the future and one that is alive and growing toward wholeness and healing. And this is the path to God, the God who comes to us just like disguised as our life. And this runs through a room called Remember. So the stakes are high if we refuse because we're not only cutting ourselves off from our own experience, but from reality and in a sense from God who speaks through all of it. To refuse to remember is to refuse the primary way God is present to us in our lives. And this is why Beekner encourages us with these words. Listen to your life, he says. See it for the fathomless mystery it is. In the boredom and the pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch Taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is grace. And so I commend to you, Redemption Church, the life of St. Frederick. A great writer, a great saint. May his memory be a blessing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for the life of Frederick Buechner and his great courage in remembering and writing his, his gifts, which he could have just run around Manhattan in literary circles with, but instead gave his life to you and yet remained who he was, a writer, an artist, a ragamuffin with a broken heart. And um, we pray that his life would speak to us and that we would, by his example, learn to listen to our own life. To see it for the gift that it is. A fathomless mystery. In the boredom, in the pain of life, in the excitement and gladness of life. Help us to touch and taste and feel and smell our way to the hidden heart of it and to find you there. Amen. Would you stand please? And we're going to receive communion. The way we, that we do this at Redemption is just we'll re, be released row by row. You can come forward and take a piece of bread and you dip it into the cup and receive it. And as you do, they will say, remember the body and blood of Christ. 
and you can respond, I will remember, or just however you're comfortable. We do this because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he shared it with his followers and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance, remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup and blessed it and passed it around. They drank from the same cup. It was kind of a, a communal, like a, a sign of friendship. And then he said, whenever you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup in remembrance of me. Remember me. It's a way of taking our life, taking his life into our life and, and being made out of the stuff he's made out of. And so this is, this is why we receive communion, just to remember. And so it's also why we invite anybody to share. So anyone who calls on the name of Christ can join us. Um, so if you would... Um, Join me and let's pray a blessing. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light, and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?